0: Our Savior, our Lord, and our life.
1: Hi again, friends, and welcome one more time to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm your host, John Russell, and I'm here with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. How you doing, Frank? You recovering from the hurricane okay?
2: Yes, sir. Clawing out of it. Uh, we uh, miraculously got spared. It was heading right at us, but moved about 50 miles east very rapidly. And we were on the west side, which as you know, having lived here is the good side. Somebody asked, said to me, boy, God loves us. I said, yeah, he just doesn't love those people east of us. (laughs) (laughs) Being facetious, of course. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I know it. But you know, your comment about being right in the bullseye. I've lived there for so many years and seen so many storms and so much pain and so much loss and so much suffering. My friend, This is going to fit right into our conversation today. And friends, if you haven't joined us for the past couple of episodes, uh, we're in the middle of a series that's a little bit different. We're talking about Frank's new book, new as in coming really soon. So it's called uh, Finding God in the Gray, The Path of Pain. Frank, tell us a little bit about why you wrote that book before we get into our conversation today.
2: Sure, John. That's a, that's a, I'll do that real quick. A lady call us up. She's from another state and asked if she could meet with Janet and myself as she was going through some really deep struggles. And we met with her over dinner and the Holy Spirit granted her some truth and some freedom, but it was very insufficient. And so I sat down to write her a letter and as I was writing, it got to be about a 10 or 12 page letter. And I thought to myself, hmm, I think rather this should be a book and we'll expand its influence beyond just this one lady who's in pain to the community of pain. And then I sat on it because, as you know, life will be life. And then Janet gave me a plaque and the story behind it, of course, I think we've told already, but. The plaque said, grace sat down with me until I could walk again, which is basically what God did in my life and has done in so many people's lives. And the Holy Spirit nudged me with that plaque to get after this and get it done. So it will be out soon. And we're so excited that hoping that the Holy Spirit will use it as a tool in the hands of hurting people to lead them to find God in a way they never knew him.
1: Amen. That's something we all need. And listeners, one of the reasons we're doing this is that we know that uh, while some folks will be able to purchase a book such as this, many will not. And so we are slowly going through the basic outline of the book so that you can pick up the main points if, for whatever reason, you're not able to get a hard copy. So that's what we've been focusing on the past couple of episodes. And we're going to continue today. A brief summary, if I can, Frank. The first week, we basically talked about pain, the prevalence of pain in everyone's life. And then last time, we talked about common responses to pain denial, shock, and the way we minimize our pain, how the church has really not been very helpful in in being a hospital, in dealing with people who are hurting. And I want to begin today with I'll give you a heads up, my friend. I'm going to ask some very pointed questions. So you're going to be on the spot. Okay. Okay. And so uh, I want to begin with this statement. Pain really is a given. If you've lived any time in this world, you've experienced undoubtedly physical pain, pain in relationships, emotional pain, some disappointment, rejection, loss of someone you love or something valuable to you. It basically comes with life in a cursed world, living with a bunch of lost people. So I want to ask you, if God loves me immensely, my friend, and I know he does, why does he allow it? And I'm going to just turn the mic over to you. Oh, my
2: goodness. John, that is, in fact, two of the chapters in the book. And one of the things I think we wrestle with is in Father's word, the revelation of who He is. And in his word, he says he is infinite love. He loves us not because of us, but because of himself. He has to love, or he would violate his nature. Psalm 119 says he's good and does only good. But then you have many passages in Scripture that says, He's working all things after the counsel of his own will, not good things, all things, which would include bad things. But if he's good and loving, then certainly he's not the cause of bad things. And that's one of the things we go after in the book, because we would agree with that. In God, in the New Testament says there's nothing evil in him at all. So how does he allow it? And people have been trying to answer that for centuries. And some people focus on his sovereignty and basically come up with an answer like this. Well, if you got cancer, it was God's will. If your child died, it was God's will. Deal with it. Well, my heart and my mind rebel against that. And I'm sure yours does, too. Oh, yes. But on the flip side of that is those people who say, well, it's just the fall of man. So we're in a fallen world and the world is full of sinful men and women. And so the bad that happens to us is just a consequence of the fall. Well, that doesn't satisfy my mind or my heart either because it doesn't do justice to the nature and character of God. Because if he is good and loving, and he is, And if he's all powerful, and he is, and if he's on the throne of the universe, and he is, then the harsh reality for us is he could have stopped it and chose not to. And a lot of people, John, don't want to go there. And I say we have to go there because otherwise we're going to violate the nature and character of God. And People at that point say to me, Well, how can you harmonize all those attributes of God? And my answer, I don't think people like, but I think it's truth. We don't harmonize them. It's too big for our brain, but it's not a problem for an infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God. And I think what we have to do is look at who God is not how did this happen so rearrange the words from an H-O-W to a WHO. and seeing how big he is, good he is, loving he is, sovereign he is, fall down before him, worship him. Instead of fighting against what has happened, receive it and say, Lord, I need you. To get me through this, um, if I could quote, we spend a great deal of time in the book on Job. You know, this is basically what happened to him, John. He finally broke down in about the middle of the book and cried out for some answer. And God said to him, Gird your belt, son, we're going to have a man to man. And then God asked Job questions. And I'd never done this before, but there's actually 77 questions. I never knew that. I thought there was like 12 or 15, but there's 77 and not a one of them Job can answer. Uh And and I don't think God asked them for Job to give an answer. I think he gave them to show Job, do you realize who you're, you're questioning? And Job, it had the desired response. He said, I used to say that I knew you, but now my
1: eyes really see. I hear all (laughs) this, Frank, but I'm going to arm wrestle with you a bit. Go ahead. Okay. And I'm going to speak from an experience, a lot of experiences in my own life. You made the point that, you know, God could have stopped it, but he didn't. A lot of people, myself included at times, have said God couldn't stop it, but he didn't. And then I add this, because he wanted it to happen. Ouch. Yes. And this is what I've seen in my own life and in, in the lives of people with whom I've had a chance to counsel over the years. When they adopt that approach, then they say, well, what's wrong with me? God is punishing me. What am I doing wrong? How am I messing up? And then when they can't figure it out, because of course they're not messing up and this may not have anything to do with their life choices, we all wind up or we're tempted to wind up building strongholds, castles of self-protection, not letting the circumstances in again, keeping God out. And this is where we kind of get tainted, my friend. We start to view everything that happens to us through this filter of pain, this filter of woundedness that we've developed Because we can't get to that point where Job got, Mm -hmm. you know, the process, the long, painful process where you have to say, yes, sir, I trust you, even though I don't understand. Many of us, probably all of us at times have trouble getting to that point. And so what do you tell people who are wrestling with that very struggle?
2: Mm -hmm. I would say two thoughts, John. First, I'd go back to what you said early in your statement God meant it to happen. I would probably take a little different spin on that out of Genesis fifty twenty, in that he had a totally different minting, <laughs> if I could. You know the story. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They were wicked. Uh, he suffered greatly in Egypt, finally gets delivered through the revelation of a dream, ends up prime minister saves the nation of Egypt, including his family. The brothers come and bow before him, and Joseph reveals who he is. And, of course, instantly they are shaken in their boots because they're fearing revenge. Oh, yes. But Joseph makes this incredible statement. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, here's the fascinating thing. When I went and studied the Hebrew... It's the exact same word, and it doesn't just mean meant. It means to think out and devise a plan and execute the plan you've devised. So we've got these brothers thinking evil, planning evil, executing evil in that very same circumstance, which is evil. God is thinking, planning, and executing good. So although they meant the same circumstance to occur, it's with a totally different minting. God's is only good, theirs is only evil. And out of that, I've I've coined a phrase that I use with people, and that is God accomplishes his goodwill through the often evil will of man. Now, again, that's a struggle. How do I come to grips with that? And again, I think, John, that most of our struggle is, this is going to sound harsh. I don't usually use this word with people, but I would use it with you. It goes back to pride. And you say, wait a minute. Well, like I said, I don't use those words with people. What I use is this instead. I think what you're struggling with, my friend, goes back to Genesis 3. Remember the temptation. In the day you eat from the tree, you shall be as God. So if I'm going to be as God, then I should have the answers. And We forget that there's only one God, and he has the answers. I don't. And, you know, it's this this same principle, John. It's so very hard. But I think this is why Paul called faith a fight. And, you know, in 1 Timothy 6, he even used the word in agony. And they don't translate it that way, but they should. We are entering into a journey of agony to look at pain, feel pain, feel loss, and yet in agony reckon that God is still good and going to bring good out of this and even allowed it with good intention because he was minting, if you will, a totally different plan, and Habakkuk you know, the Chaldeans would come in and they're going to wipe out Israel. And, and Habakkuk cries out and, and God says, trust me. And so he's looking at this wicked people who's more wicked than Israel and going to come and judge Israel. And it doesn't make sense. So he sits down and he starts to recite all that he knows about God you're omnipotent, you're omniscient, you parted the Red Sea, you made the sun stand still. And as he takes his eyes off of the circumstance, off of himself, he sees God. And he basically says, bring on the Chaldeans. Now, I love his honesty, because this isn't a sickening syrupy smile on his face boy I'm trusting God he actually says there's trembling on my lips and decay in my bones my body is not in line with my will to trust my emotions are not in line with my will to trust but because faith is a vision issue it's really it really is it's a sight issue Where are your eyes I know scripture says faith is trusting what we cannot see, but it's faith is really putting your eyes somewhere. Right. And he's putting his eyes on God. And he says, I don't get it, but I believe. And you know what, John? I'm almost moved to tears here, but that's the same exact thing that our Lord Jesus did. Oh, yes. I don't want the cross. Is there any other way? I mean, that's agony. That's. That's emotional turmoil. And then he says these incredible words, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And, you know, the real thesis of the book, John, if I could synopsis into a phrase. There's purpose in our pain. Because there is a God that we are in covenant relationship with. There is purpose in our pain. We may not see it. We may not feel it that purpose is good and the good is coming. And it's a hard road. That's an agonizing road.
1: It certainly is because we focus on uh, the here and now, you know, you do, I do. We all just look at our circumstances and make decisions about whether it's good or not good without really uh, asking father to give us his perspective, because sometimes uh, he'll bring to mind verses like Romans eight twenty eight. You know, mm-hmm. all things are in the process of working together to bring good for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this thing that seems like an absolute nightmare, my father can act- actually use that uh, to bring life, to bring praise and glory to him through this, mm-hmm. if I will trust him through it. My struggle, all of our struggle tends to be, uh, oh, no, this nightmare, I need to fix this. But sometimes, as you know, my friend, with your daughter and with hurricanes, sometimes they're just problems you can't fix. And you have no choice but to fall on your knees and say, Father, I'm done. I'm tapped out. I need, I need here.
2: Well, John, I think you've hit on a huge, huge context today. Because what I find the church doing is trying to figure this out. And if you're going to do that, you're eventually going to misrepresent God. You're either going to focus too much on his love and neglect his sovereignty, or you're going to focus on his sovereignty and neglect his love. And the only way to harmonize this is to not harmonize it and just admit that he's God. He's bigger. You know, there's a very key verse in the old book. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. Yeah, Deuteronomy 29. And exactly. And I think this is part of the secret things that belong to God. It's your brain is too small to figure this out. Mine isn't. What I have revealed, that I'm good, loving, and in control, that's yours. And because that's true, trust me, even though you don't see, even though you don't feel. And, you know, that's not going to make the pain go away, John. Oh, no. Um, And I think that's the second thing the church is doing. They're trying to fix people. And I really believe that this is hindering us from full ministry. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, you look at the hurting world, and they know there's a mess. Well, they look at the church and they see this plastic face with the plastic smile and say, God's in control and everything's great. And it's dishonest. But what would happen if we really became conformed to the image of Jesus? Not just that he's full of love and compassion and holiness and righteousness, but maybe this one, too that he's known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And by the way, the word acquainted is a horrible translation. Oh, yes. Uh, (laughs) I'm acquainted with my neighbor. Uh, Grief, on the other hand, is punching me in the gut. You know, (laughs) I'd like to be acquainted with grief, but that's just not the way it is. That's right. But if we would allow ourselves to hurt and be honest about it, I think the unbelieving world would look at the church and go, huh, they hurt too but they've got something we don't have. And I think that if that were to occur, uh, the church would really become a dangerous entity because we'd offer an honest appraisal of life with an honest declaration of who God is and wants to be to hurting
1: people. Amen. True indeed. You know, my friend, you mentioned Jesus twice. And so I'm going to bring up a point speaking to our big brother and what he suffered. You know, we don't know much about uh, his childhood. We know about his birth. We have a few glimpses while he was growing up, but not much. Luke 2.52 has this. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And I used to think, that this word that's translated increased would bring to mind like you plant a seed and a little seedling emerges and it grows steady and strong up to the sun. Uh, A great word picture in my mind, but you know, my friend, that's not what that word means. The word increase doesn't mean to grow slow and steady like a plant. It means to be hammered out, lengthened, Mm pounded into the shape it needs to be, just like a blacksmith shapes a piece of metal. Wow! Now you're talking about about Jesus and the things he suffered and a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You know, his loving father worked in our savior's life to hammer, stretch and shape him so that when the time was right, he would be the perfect messiah. And this is the key in Jesus life. And in ours, the key is to bear fruit. Mm. And uh, you know, Hebrews five tells us that he, even though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Mm. And so uh, our father in heaven didn't spare his own son. And that phrase didn't spare, doesn't refer only to the time on the cross. It refers to his entire life when he suffered So that he could be perfectly suited, perfected, Hebrews 5 says, to be the perfect savior so that he could bear the fruit our father wanted him to bear. And my friend, you and I are part of that fruit. And so if we take the idea of our suffering hammering us into the shape our father wants us to be to bear his fruit for his kingdom. Maybe that's a tack we can take to help us see our suffering a little differently. What do you think?
2: Boy, that's huge, John, because as I was listening to you, I had this thought. If the teacher, Jesus, learned obedience through suffering, and yet we have many, many teachers out there saying, oh, no, you come to Christ, and it's this float through life. That's putting us, the students, above the teacher. If You know what I'm saying? It, we, we cannot be spared what he was not spared if we're going to be fully conformed to his image. Luke 640 says when we're fully discipled, we will be like the discipler. So if he had to go through suffering, then so would we. There's no such thing as this Mr. Rogers New Covenant, a name it claim it, economy of grace. Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, marvel not when these things come upon you. You know, James, various trials are coming. Peter, don't be surprised. So we should be almost looking. I don't want to say looking. No, I, no, no. No I, I don't want to search for it. No, uh, no, but we should be prepared for when it comes that this is not something strange, but embrace the second half of what Jesus said. When he said in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome it. And so when our suffering comes, I think what Jesus is saying there is you come to me and I will be the overcomer in you and through you over what has come against you. And boy, we've got biblical proof for that. You know, we've got Romans eight where he says, nothing can separate you and all these things. You're more than a conqueror. And my favorite passage would probably be 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul got real honest. I love 2 Corinthians. This this is the epistle he said he opened his heart. So his other epistles are his mind, but 2 Corinthians 4 is his heart. And he said in chapter four, death comes at us every day. So that, purpose clause, isn't that interesting? Purpose in the pain, that the resurrection life might be made manifest. So as death comes from the outside in, the life that's in explodes inside out and overcomes the death. We weep with triumph in our tears. We carry pain, but we stand and walk courageously. And that, John, is a very dangerous man or woman because it presents an honest savior to a very harsh world.
1: Oh, boy, what a comment. As you're talking, my friend, I'm thinking about Jesus' time in Gethsemane, where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, and he pleaded out to his father. You've already mentioned this. Not my will, but yours. You know, sir, is there a plan B? Uh, What's behind door number two? Let's check that out. But when he says, not my will, but yours, I think, my friend, this is the ultimate fruit of his life of hammering, stretching, and shaping that he suffered. And and in a sense, to my mind, he says, sir, I trust you. I'm not really sure that I understand, but I grit my teeth and I trust you. So let's saddle up. Let's move out. What's next? And then he comes out of the garden, a very different man. Mm -hmm. than he was several verses earlier. His mind is set on his father. He's decided he's going to trust him uh, no matter what. And he just proceeds through. And uh, that's the same journey that our father has for each of us. Thankfully, we don't have to suffer all he did, but we will have to suffer. Mm -hmm. We will have to suffer loss. There will be pain. And Basically, his life will be manifest in us when we say, yes, sir, I don't understand, but I trust you. Hmm. Uh, Let's saddle up and move out.
2: Yeah. You know, if I could use your language, John, we're in plan A. Plan A has come into our lives. Otherwise, God wouldn't have allowed it. We look for a plan B. (laughs) Let's escape. Let's get out of this. Oh, yeah. And instead, what we're really saying is... Go back to Plan A, and go to the Father and say, "All right, let's do this together," and reveal to me what this is all about. And like you, you also said circumstances didn't change. We mentioned Jeremiah in the Book of Lamentations, and of course, Lamentations is a book a lot of people just never read. I mean, even the title is
1: scary. Yeah, what a name (laughs) for a book. It's like walking into the bookstore and saying, I'd like to have all six volumes in the series, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You got them all? I'll take all six.
2: Yeah. and But there's a hidden jewel in that book. It's chapter three. The story, of course, the Chaldeans have come, wiped out Jerusalem. There's death. There's ashes from the burning city. And he's sitting down in all this and he's lamenting. And he's believing all those lies we talked about earlier. God is against me all day long. God God hates me. You know, God's like a bear in ambush. He wants to devour me. And, but then there's an interesting thing right around verse 19. He says it twice, remembering my sorrow all the day long, remembering the sorrow all the day long. So where's his mind? Where his yeah. eyes on his circumstances? Then he says this, but... This one thing I recalled in my mind. So he sets his eyes differently. And he says, great is the faithfulness of God and his mercies are new every morning. And from the rest of that chapter, he is exalting in God and praise and joy and the key word above all words, hope. I have hope. Oh, yeah. And the circumstances didn't change. He's still sitting in the ashes and they're covering his skin gray, and he, there's people dead all around him. But Jeremiah changed. He's a different man because he's tapped into God in a way that he had not been
1: tapping into God before. He uses a phrase, Frank says, The Lord is my portion. Mm. And, you know, I love that because when we suffer pain, loss, rejection, we tend to look at everything that we used to have that we don't have anymore and we grieve its absence. Mm. But what we don't tend to do right out of the box is look and say, well, what do I have left? Ah, I have this left. I have the Lord left. He is what's left to me. And he is more than enough compared to Mm. everything that I lost. So that phrase, his portion, I think Mm. we don't, we don't as a church today, really embrace the fact that the Lord is our portion. Mm. He's ours and he's everything we need at the moment that we need it.
2: Mm. Maybe we could change and add some synonyms, although the Holy Spirit does a great job of word choice, (laughs) but the Lord is our supply. The Lord is our sufficiency. The Lord is our everything. You know, we could just run with that. The basic idea is he wants to be all that you need. Amen. Which is basically what Paul said in Philippians 4. My God will supply your need. He'll give you the strength, the hope, the peace. Even when your soul is in turmoil and all you can do is lay down and cry. Yeah. He will be there.
1: But, you know, we tend to recite that verse, and sing the song. He provides for me. He'll supply all my needs. We sing that song, but we generally sing it with an upbeat, happy tone. It's generally not the first song we sing in the midst of what we think might be a personal train wreck or disaster. That's right. and, and it needs to be. Well, friends, yes. it's been an amazing time today. Frank, any last comments before we sign off?
2: John, as I was listening, I think I would quote from two very dear people who gave me permission to put them in the book. One is a dear friend, you know him, Ross Gilbert, up in Canada. He says this, quote, if there is no purpose in our pain, then God is not good. End quote. That is a powerful statement. And the other sweet, sweet lady, Johnny Erickson Tata, who many people know as Johnny and friends. And she gave me permission to use this oft quoted phrase of hers. And it's, she says this, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves.
1: Ooh. Well, friends, I don't think we can end on a better phrase than that. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. My goodness. Thanks again for joining us today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. My friend, I don't want to stop. I want to continue, but we're going to come back again next time and pick up this conversation. If you join Midway, we've been chatting about Pastor Frank's newest book coming soon. Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain. Check it out on Amazon. And while you're online, don't forget to visit our website, ourresolutehope.com. And please take a few moments to browse around, check out the references and resources we have available. Pop us an email, sign up for our newsletter. Let us hear from you. And be sure to visit uh, the newest part of our website coming soon, our members portal. It's going to be free. And there you'll find some vintage Pastor Frank Friedman that's from way, way, way back that uh, we trust you'll enjoy. And also don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and all those other things, my friend, that you and I are really too old to understand. And finally, as always, we close with this reminder from Hebrews 6, that we, all of us, have a hope, a living hope, Peter calls it, a resolute hope that's an anchor for our souls. So today and always, choose hope and choose Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.